Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. If you're going to talk about voice, agency and advocacy, it kind of helps if you talk to somebody who's got a voice, who's got strong agency and exemplary advocacy. Maria Nguyen is just that sort of person. She's a youth education activist. She's really interested in finding ways to represent her community and communities around the world, particularly the disempowered. She's also a chalky. She's a primary trained teacher, which makes her much more qualified than Adriano or me. Maria Nguyen, I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 12 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We are proud to be partnered with the education team of the Museum of Australian Democracy at Old Parliament House in Canberra, Australia's capital city. Looking for civics and citizenship experiences and resources to empower voice and agency in your Australian classroom? The MOAD Learning Team have got you covered with on-site and online experiences for teachers and young people of all ages. Visit MOAD Learning at M-O-A-D-O-P-H au forward slash learning. That's M-O-A-D-O-P-H au forward slash learning. Bill, it's so wonderful to be with you, and I'm really excited to be able to have uh, Maria Nguyen on our show. But before we get to our wonderful guest, how is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating you today? Look, we're having a peachy day. Bravo, the Wonder Dog and me. It's a beautiful sunny day. We've just been out. We've had a bit of a sandwich. We've had a bit of a stroll. Uh, Bravo's picked up an unfortunate habit of enjoying street pizza, however. The good citizens of the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy, when, sometimes when they have a big night, they leave their pizza and their burritos and their uh, other sort of foods out in the street. And Bravo, he's in there like a flash and uh, enjoying a little snack there. So I'm not really sure whether that's... Uh, Permissible, but uh, he's uh, stretched out in the sun now with a very full belly and enjoying himself, Adriana. How's your day coming? Uh, I, I, I would hope the really good learned people of Fitzroy would at least put pizza out there that has none of that obscene pineapple on it, Phil. Ah, uh, look, you know, Adriano, I'm still remembering the Fitzroy uh, Pizza Festival and, and, and the De Prato special that they named after you with extra yeah, pineapple. That would never, ever happen. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our wonderful guest, Maria. Maria, so wonderful to have you on Game Changers. I'm going to ask you the very same question we ask all of our guests. Tell us about your story. How did you get to where you are today? No problem. Hi, Adriana. Hi, Phil. It's really lovely to be here on this podcast. My name is Maria Nguyen. I'm the International Education Officer at Family Planning New South Wales, also a youth advocate from the SDG for Youth Network. So my story kind of started when I was much younger um, and I grew up uh, in a Vietnamese family in Australia. And something that has really always been emphasized to me by my parents is the importance of education and I have been very blessed and lucky to have been raised in that environment where education has been a huge priority and that has really 
inspired me to become and train as a teacher first and graduate with a Bachelor of Education. Now, whilst completing my studies, I had also been able to travel overseas to teach and intern under the new Colombo Plan uh, scholarship. And that really drew my attention to international education and just how wide the education system really is. So after I had graduated, I had uh, taught as a primary school teacher before stepping into my current role in um, at Family Planning New South Wales as the International Education Officer. And after a while, after connecting with UNESCO um, and the United Nations, that eventually led me to becoming the co-lead of the Transforming Education Summit that happened in New York very recently. So that's a very quick summary of how I got here and who I am. First of all, thank you very much for sharing uh, the journey to date. And it's really interesting, Maria, listening to your story, how in such a short period of time, uh, there's been even an evolution of you and the things in which, which you have been participating in. I want to talk a little bit about the New Colombo plan for a moment before we move on into, into our full conversation around uh, the transformation of permission through, through voice agency and, and, and advocacy for every child. It's interesting that New Colombo plan, because I've actually had a number of my former students actually be really successful in winning that scholarship from the Australian government. And in fact, right now, my niece uh, is currently in New Caledonia uh, working uh, on, on environmental issues through the, the New Colombo plan. Do you want to just share with our listeners a little bit about the value that you gained from being part of that great opportunity that's afforded to uh, many young Australians from our, our government? Sure. I always think back to the first time I heard about the new Colombo plan. And I remember staying at the orientation day of that uh, scholarship. And they were talking about how this is a life-changing experience. You're going to learn so much. And I remember thinking at the time, there's no way this scholarship could make that much of a change in my life. But I really genuinely think that scholarship, uh, the new Colombo plan scholarship has change the trajectory of my professional development, but also my personal uh, development as well. So with this scholarship, I had interned and studied at Vanuatu as well as in Singapore. So when I was in Vanuatu, I originally had the thought and plan to come and do some teaching internships um, as part of my Bachelor of Education. And I was able to work in very remote areas as well as town areas, which was absolutely beautiful. And just seeing the way that the education system works there. However, I also later on was able to intern at a variety of different uh, youth-led organizations, including Youth Challenge Vanuatu. And that really brought in a lot of perspective about how the education system is not just about the formal school system or about the classrooms, but it's much wider than how we usually or traditionally think about it. And that there are so many out of school organizations, uh, health organizations, private sectors who are all collaborating for this education sector to actually thrive. Later on, I then went to Singapore where I really learned about the importance of drama and the importance of the arts in order to teach 
particularly about health, well-being and personal reflection. So seeing that side of education was really inspiring and something that I bring back to my practice nowadays when I look at comprehensive sexuality education and how we can teach young people to develop the knowledge, skills and attitudes to reflect on who they are and where they are in the world, but also some gender norms, uh, power dynamics that exist around them and bringing that drama elephant through drama um, element through role plays and so on is really helpful in enabling students to learn through those pedagogies. So in sum, that that scholarship has been very eye-opening. It has led me to realize so many different ways that the education system works beyond the classroom. I'm sure there was a drama elephant there as well as a drama (laughs) elephant, Maria. uh, I, I, let's let's stick with Vanuatu and Singapore for a moment because I've got experience with both of those countries um, yeah, uh, in the recent past. And there's a real contrast, isn't there? Vanuatu is a country that does an incredible amount with nothing. You know, it's like you, you, you're lucky if there, you're lucky if there's uh, a cement floor in the classroom because most of the, most of the classrooms I went to in Vanuatu had dirt floors. Um, and yet, by contrast, you've got Singapore, which is is a country that has everything and it just how did you manage that contrast between making the most of nothing and making the most of everything when i think back on my time between vanuatu and singapore i often think i jumped from being in the jungle to being into a concrete jungle so when i was in <laughs> vanuatu it wasn't that they didn't have anything Of course, they were low in materialistic resources, but what we found in Vanuatu is they had very strong community partnerships. So although they didn't necessarily have, you know, a smart board in every room or a concrete floor, they were able to work with parents and the wider community in a very collaborative way to ensure that the health and well-being, as well as the learning of students were prioritised. When it came to Singapore, they were a lot more resourced and very innovative in terms of their digital learning space. However, sometimes from my perspective, uh, it can be quite a very competitive area within the school because students are being ranked against other students' achievements. So it's interesting to see the pros and cons of the different education systems that exist around the world and the different ways that they use uh, resources in order to uh, teach their students. Yes, the ultimate resource really is the people who you're working with. Um, and, and as I said, it's the, the, the challenges of education in both countries are, are very, very different. How did your experience in both of those countries inspire you to think about your sense of purpose as an educator? Well, when I was teaching in Vanuatu, something that I, I guess, came to realise is learning about my students and learning about where their lives are and how they interact with their families and so on. I was also able to discuss a lot with students who were outside of the school system And some of the things that they raised include their desire to be a part of the community that they were in and raising some of the social issues that they were very passionate about. That includes climate change, but also uh, gender-based violence, which is a huge issue um, in in their perspective. 
So it was really interesting seeing then and reflecting on my role, because at the time I was studying to be a teacher, what, what's my role as a teacher or as an educator? And I think when I'm reflecting on that, something that's really important is teachers and educators have a pivotal role in promoting critical thinking skills. And that includes enabling students to reflect on who they are, what is their identity, but also what are the norms that are existing within their society? What are the different power dynamics that exist? And what is their way of meaningfully contributing to the world around them? When did you know that the voice of the dispossessed and the alienated, of those who struggle, of those who are marginalised, when did you know that that was central to what you need to do as an educator? I feel for me, it's something that I had always already knew, but over the years, I came to realise more and more. So when I think about my own upbringing, you know, I grew up in a low socioeconomic area in Western Sydney. I grew up uh, in a Vietnamese uh, family where we were speaking a language background other than English. So for me, seeing these uh, inequalities and how it impacted what I could or couldn't do, or what I perceived I could or couldn't do, uh, really impacted my perspective of education and the role of education to empower young people who may be facing intersecting dimensions of inequality. So I feel like it has already been rooted in my upbringing in this understanding of the power of education. So it's something that you've always had, it's, it's inherent within you. Yes, I think it's something that has always been inherent in me, but I think seeing and hearing from other people's stories has also made me realise that there's a lot of inequalities and intersecting inequalities around the world as well. And it's not just about me, but it's also about the shared experiences of a lot of different people and this need for education to empower others. Okay, so I've been sitting here listening to you and Phil really get to the heart of what it is that burns inside of you and why it is you do what you do. And we're hearing about the outcomes of your work, but it was really lovely then to hear a little bit about what has motivated you to, to continue to, to do the things you do. You recently attended the United Nations Transforming Education Summit in New York City, and this summit featured young advocates from across the globe each sharing their kind of lived experience. What I'm interested to hear from you, Maria, before we get to the nitty-gritty of what happened at that, at that summit, is what does empowerment for each and every child actually look like in practice? That's a great question. So I think when it comes to empowerment, it doesn't necessarily mean to give voice because I feel like young people already have that voice within them. They already carry so many different stories. When it comes to empowering young people, it essentially means let's effectively listen to them and ensure that they understand that they have access to basic rights and dignity as well. Empowering means enabling them to recognize what their rights are, but also to listen to all the stories that they hold. I'm going to now take it a, another step further. You're speaking there a little bit around some of the perhaps ways in which we could approach it in practice. 
what do you believe are the school structures that actually have to occur to give real permission, though, for young people to be able to step into their voice and their agency? Having some kind of student representative council or student-led body is an incredible way to get students motivated to partake in shaping the way that their their education um, is provided. However, what's really important is that we are not just ensuring that it's the high achievers, the academically high performing students who make it to these student representative councils, but that these councils are equitable and inclusive and include a range of different perspectives Because if we really want to transform education, it's not just about listening to students who may be, um, you know, doing well in school already, but listening to why students who may not necessarily be benefiting from the education system as it is right now, why is that the case? What are the different roadblocks that may exist? In addition to that, it's really important that we think beyond the school system as well. So we need to think about how can we connect schools with youth-friendly health services so we can strengthen some referral pathways. We also need to think about how we can work more closely with different grassroots organisations or health organisations outside of the school system so that young people can be referred to these as well. I'm going to continue down this line, but I'm going to change it up just slightly because my first question just listening to you so eloquently share a a way forward for schools to really amplify the voice of young people in their care and and to move it from just those formal positions within schools, but to make it part of the the, the culture of being within that that school. So much of your recent work uh, as part of the kind of sustainable development goals for youth advocate for UNESCO uh, has been around influencing Uh, many in Australia and across the international education. I'm interested to know who has influenced you on your learning journey and why? So definitely, as I mentioned before, my parents have been a huge influence for me. So they had grown up um, in Vietnam before being refugees who came to Australia And something that they've always emphasised is the importance of education, not only in terms of the academics, but more so the general health and well-being and, you know, my growth as a person in addition to just the grades that are shown in a report. That has been a huge influence for who I am as well as the work that I do in education. In addition to that, I think it's also the teachers that I had particularly in high schools. So in high school, I was very lucky to have had some teachers who really encouraged all of us to think critically rather than just writing what we think should be the answer, but really to put in our voice and our stories in what we were writing about. That has had a huge influence in me and my perspective of what education is about as well as my role as an educator in always promoting critical thinking uh, within school systems and the education system as a whole. There's a beautiful um, understated confidence about what you're sharing with us today, Maria. And, And I love the fact that your parents are part of the people who have influenced you positively. Uh, No doubt we are all fortunate being products of migration to have that wonderful example of parents who, who have come from foreign countries, 
who have come here with every great intent to start a life for their families, for themselves, filled with great hope and optimism of what could be. And, and they've given so much uh, uh, to our communities to shape them and form them to, to what they are today. I feel, though, that sometimes people may not have had the blessed experience that you and I have had, yeah? Um, you know, and, and we've been in situations where there are those still on the margins in our society, uh, whether it is uh, ethnicity, whether it is sexual orientation, whether it's gender, whether it's disability, whether it's the faith that they follow and so on. How, how can we help those voices on the margins to actually be truly heard within our schools and in our society? I completely agree that, you know, I am very blessed with the upbringing that I have been provided. I think if we are to make sure that education is for all and no one is left behind, that we really need to make sure that, you know, drawing back to, to the saying, it takes a village. It's not about just on the shoulders of a parent or on the shoulders of one teacher, but it's about creating these support networks so that in the case that a child or a young person doesn't have the supportive environment at home or at school, there is still a community network that is there to support them. Now, in order for that to occur, we need to make sure that the education system is not working in a silo, but is working in partnerships with different communities, with parents, with guardians, with different uh, support networks so that young people's health and well-being can be prioritized. And in addition to that, we really need to look hard at what the roadblocks currently are. It's very easy to say that we need to train teachers so that they can provide, um, you know, the support to these students, but teachers themselves also need to be supported. So we need to make sure that, they're, that we are properly addressing um, teacher recruitment issues, being able to retain teachers so that we are able to ensure that all students have a supportive teacher um, within their school who they can turn to for support. We also need to make sure that we have the health services available that are youth-friendly and inclusive so that young people can be addressed and referred to these services. What's also key is that we approach this in a very intersectional way. So that means acknowledging that there are multiple layers of discrimination that someone may face. So it might not necessarily just be gender, but it could also be uh, you know, as you mentioned, a few different factors about race, about sexual orientation, about disability, and that these factors can compound. So we need to make sure that we have a strong understanding of who our students are, what their needs are, and how can we ensure that their needs are met. At uh, the um, Transforming Education Summit, you made the following statement. When I was 12, I was told to be extra careful on my way to school because I am a girl. I share these stories with many other girls and women. Our stories are uniquely experienced, yet they unite us in our call for gender equality in and through education. So my question to you is this, going beyond the commitment of a diversity statement or a special event that shines a spotlight on a particular group in our school communities and in our society, 
what the, what will it look like when inclusion and belonging are actually infused intentionally in the lived practice of our schools and across society? So if we want to see inclusion and equity, first of all, we need to make sure that their voices are heard. So drawing back to what I had mentioned before with the example of student representative councils, it's not about just making sure that it's the elite that are represented, but making sure that there is a variety and diversity of voices that are accounted for. In addition to that, we need to ensure that we understand that different people have different needs and that we are able to cater for these different needs as well. So it's not just about, you know, making sure that the education system is only for a particular kind of person, but rather looking at how we can ensure that all people in all of their diversities are able to access quality education. Maria, if I can, I want to dig deeper with this one because it's a really, I think it's a really interesting example of theory and practice. In his Revisionist History podcast series, Malcolm Gladwell, um, well, I can't remember the series five or series six um, for the moment, but Malcolm Gladwell sort of identifies a, a practice uh, in uh, South America, Colombia, where student representative councils went from being chosen by application to being chosen at random, or as the ancient Greeks would have called it, by lot. So instead of having the go-getters and the careerists and the, and the people who are very good at getting in because they're very good at applying for things, the leaders were chosen at random. It's an interesting study of seeing how um, schools can operate when you change a system. Problem is, of course, to change a system like that and to end up with leaders chosen at random who are just as effective, if not more effective than the go-getters because they're actually motivated to get a job done rather than necessarily see themselves advance further. You have to convince an entire community that the system needs to be changed. Now, I had the opportunity earlier this year to go and um, lecture a remarkable group of students who are doing a master's in sustainable leadership at uh, the Smith School at Oxford University out of 20-odd people in the room, there are seven Rhodes Scholars there. It's absolutely ridiculous, um, the talent in the room. And yet it was interesting to try and tease out of them um, how you actually go about convincing people to let something go so that something new can happen. Because what's really clear is it's not rational. You can't just sit there and say, here are all the benefits, so therefore we're going to change because they'll just turn around and they'll say, no, we're not going to change. How is it that you can help a system within a school to shift because you can change the mindset of the people? How do you actually change mindsets when you're working on the ground with people? I think when it comes to changing mindsets and changing, changing attitudes, changing habits, essentially, it's about getting the right questions and really thinking about who are the winners in this system and who aren't? So when we think about addressing student health and well-being, as well as their learning, we need to think who at the moment isn't benefiting from the system. This involves a lot of effective listening as well. So it's about asking the right questions, but also effectively listening to those students who may not necessarily be having their voices heard. So what we know, for example, is a lot of students are being bullied 
or are experiencing violence because of their disability or migrant status or because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. We need to be able to listen to these stories to critically think why why these inequalities or why this violence is occurring so then we can think about how we can address them. Now, change is never going to be easy, but we need to make sure that change comes from these stories up. It's not about these people in powers of in positions of power making the decisions. It's about listening effectively to the different stories and voices of students and seeing how can we make sure that their needs are actually met. I hear what you're saying, but people who have privilege, people who have power, people who have position, tend not to think about the people who don't. So, you know, again, a, a piece of our research, um, which is really quite disturbing, and I've mentioned it on, on other episodes of Game Changes before, which is that when you talk with teachers, um, and in this instance we did a big study in New Zealand and a big study in South Africa, when you talk with teachers and students about the boosters and blockers, the, the sources of agency in a school, students will identify correctly that there are four main sources of agency, that there's teachers, there's students, there's systems, and there's culture. The teachers always forget the students. They just don't think about them because the teachers are the ones with the agency in the system already. So being rational and being persuasive and being well-informed and and, and, and providing the prov- provocation that says we ought to think of those who have not, I'm not sure people do that. So how do we convince them to surrender what they have so that others might have that which they need, which they don't have? I hear you in saying that people of power often don't want to give up that power. But something that I've learned is power is never served on a silver plate. It's never going to be easy. It's never going to be handed over to anyone who may be experiencing discrimination or oppression or exclusion. What is key is that we are able to show young people or people who may be marginalised that they don't necessarily need to ask for permission to share their voices, to share their stories. And that is how the momentum builds up. It's not necessarily about waiting to be given a seat at the table. It's not necessarily about waiting for permission to be able to create change. It's about realizing that the change can come from themselves and their stories and that their stories are valued and should be heard. Power is never going to be given on a silver plate. It needs to be drawn from a bottom-up approach and it's about sharing the stories and realizing that they the people who are oppressed also have valuable stories and are equally just as human and equally just as deserving of education as the people who are in power i'm glad you mentioned permission because something that we've been asking all of our guests on this series is about the notion of permission game changes are, are those brave pioneers who don't ask for permission. You know, they do what they feel as as though they need to do without the formal consent to do something. Um, When was there a time in your career where you didn't wait for permission and simply did something because you felt it was the right thing to do? Thinking about when I didn't need permission may include how I got into the whole Transforming Education Summit in the first place. It was not something I waited for my workplace to share this opportunity for me to gain. 
it was something that I saw as highly important and something that I had applied for. And once I had applied for it, it was something that my workplace saw as a huge need that, yes, we need to be part of this Transforming Education Summit to make sure that uh, the voices of young people are also heard here as well. Another example of when I didn't ask for permission is when we were doing the youth consultations. We didn't need to wait for you know, someone to say, yes, go ahead with the youth consultations for the Transforming Education Summit. At the SDG for Youth Network, we realized that it was far too important. And at the time, you know, the Transforming Education Summit was coming up. If we didn't hold youth consultations, that means youth, youth voices wouldn't be included at the summit. So we went out ahead and we consulted both on Zoom as well as went out to different schools, went to different youth groups and just raised the questions of what do you want to see when we talk about transforming education? We didn't have to wait for permission to do that because we knew that if we waited for permission, it would never happen. And that is an example of, uh, you know, how you can make change without waiting for permission to be granted. So um, that's really interesting. I love that. I love that. I've got two questions for you before we wrap this conversation up, Maria. The first question is, there was an outstanding youth declaration that was presented at that summit. Uh, I posted it on my social media and shared it widely, as, as did many. There are aspirations in there that are, that are bold that are noble, but desperately needed, uh, you know, for, for, for not only today's world, but of course, tomorrow's. How optimistic are you in governments and organisations seriously adopting those declarations into practice? So at the moment, there are still some huge roadblocks that prevent young people from having their voices heard and meaningfully engaged from consultations all the way to co-design for education. However, that being said, youth voices are growing. Throughout the world, the, the youth declaration has really provided us unity in our call for action, unity in our demands for a transformed education system, and a common language that we can use in order to implement and call for these demands to happen. So I'll just give you one example. Uh, before I went to the Transforming Education Summit and engaged in the youth consultations leading to this youth declaration, I had thought that I was alone in working on comprehensive sexuality education, and it was a very specifically regional issue that we were working on. We saw in Australia there was the teachers' consent movement that happened um, led by Chanel Contos. We saw young people demanding for more information about consent and sexual and reproductive health, both in Australia and within the Pacific region. But what didn't occur to me is that this is something and an issue that is happening all around the world. When I had spoken to many other young people from Africa, from Asia, from Latin America, it became blatantly clear to me that demanding for comprehensive sexuality education is something that young people are calling for all around the world. This is just one example of the many demands included in the youth declaration. And I feel that now that all of us, all the young people and all the students around the world are realizing that they are not alone in making these demands, our voices are unstoppable.
we have a collective voice now as young people and students all around the world. We have proven that we want to transform education and we are there building connections, not only amongst ourselves, but with civil society organizations, with teachers, with different funders, and collectively, if we work in a multi-sectoral and intergenerational way, there's no way to stop us in transforming education. I think you're going to end up winning anyway because you're younger than all us old people. Um, mm -hmm. So you're just going to outlive us anyway. I, there's a word in there that I'm, I'm curious about because it's a word that young people use a lot, uh, and that's the word demand. Is there something else apart from demand? Is there another verb apart from demand? Is there another way apart from banging the table um, that you can make progress on this transformation? With any demand comes with responsibility as well. So it's about roles and responsibilities. It's not just about demanding, but also reflecting on ourselves and how can we create the change without asking for permission. It's about a balance. It's about reciprocity. It's about listening to our, you know, people who may be older or more experienced, but also, uh, you know, asking for that to be returned, asking for that respect to be uh, returned to us. As young people, we don't claim that we know absolutely everything. However, we do have a very special perspective in that we are currently in the education system or just outside of it. So we have a perspective of lived experiences in the current education system that no one else has. And we can't transform education without listening to that perspective. So my final question to you is this, Maria, before I hand it over to my esteemed colleague to wrap up this great conversation that we've been having today. So much of your work, it's clear to our audience, is about an advocacy for the other. And there's this beautifully strong thread in your, in your words and in your purpose that has a direct relationship to building a more just and sustainable world. What commitment do you personally make to your ongoing growth as a future builder? So a commitment that I make to myself is always reflecting on my power my privilege, because that is the starting point of how we can support others as well. If I am able to reflect on my own identity, on my own privileges, and be able to, you know, share those power and privileges with other people and lifting other people up, then that's my little bit that I'm doing for the world. It was interesting, you know, stepping into international development because Prior to working in international development space, I always saw myself as more on the marginalized side. You know, I grew up in a low socioeconomic area with Vietnamese parents. And for a majority of my life, I always saw myself on the marginalized side. But then stepping into this international development space where many countries see myself as a representative of Australia, a very privileged country, you can see that, you know, there's a shift in my identity and my power as well. So something that I'm committing to myself is making sure I'm always reflecting on where my power and my privilege comes and being able to share and uplift others in that journey. 
Maria, it's been terrific listening to the voice of such an accomplished advocate and such a passionate player in the space that you're in today. We want to thank you for being on Game Changers. We want to thank you for the work you're doing. We also want to ask you not to forget to go back into the classroom at some point because that's what we should be doing. You know, part of our trajectory is always to come back and teach what it is that we've learned along the way and to pass that on. You know that already, whether that's going back into a primary classroom or going to teach adults or it doesn't really matter. We take what we've learned and we, we pass it on to others. And that's that's how we build layers of adaptive expertise and self-efficacy in our community. We wish you well with the work that you're doing and we thank you for being on Game Changers today. No problem at all. And thank you. It was really lovely meeting the two of you. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.